Nature Works Podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. Welcome to NatureWorks Podcast, in which this week I'm speaking with Mike Allen, PhD. Mike's an associate professor of single cell genomics. Don't worry, he does explain what that means. He's based in the College of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Exeter. And in this episode, Mike schools me on the essentialness of viruses and how all life depends upon them. If you think that killing all viruses is a good idea, then think again. He also talks about how to kill any bacteria, even those that are nuclear proof. Did you know that there are bacteria living on the inside of nuclear reactors? I didn't. And also, Mike's a smart guy, but not as smart as his young daughter, who suggested a revolutionary approach to forming plastics and seaweed together to create a new form of oil. We also discuss Mike's rather hilarious car crash meeting with Bill Gates. And as usual, on top of that, we cramming as much science and as many anecdotes and funny and interesting stories as we possibly can. Now, if you enjoy this episode and others of NatureWorks Podcast, please share it with the folks you know who care about the natural world. NatureWorks Podcast aims to provide honest and unbiased insights into how we can help protect, restore and regenerate the natural world. Thanks for being on. Uh, I've heard lots about you and I've heard not just from the scientific perspective, but the descriptions I've had about you are that you're a little bit maverick and, um, and <coughs> giving that away. And that, and in fact, uh, the, the lady that uh, recommended that you come on said, you know, he's one of those scientists who doesn't give a fuck about upsetting people. He just, he's just interested in the truth. And I thought that's a good place to start. What does she uh, mean by that? I have no idea. No, I, I, I guess what she meant is I, I kind of, I, I speak my own truth, as it were. Uh, I've isn't, been there only one, isn't there only one truth in science? Oh, God, there's a question. Well, I thought you were going to break me in slowly. <laughs> I guess, I guess you uh, well, you know, I, I think we live in a, in a world where, especially with social media, everything's black or white, yes or no, right or wrong. And, I mean, life exists in the, the grey areas in between. And... Uh, I don't think people really um, appreciate that about science sometimes is that they, they want a yes or no or a right or wrong answer. But actually, you know, it, it often it's in between. And, and the more information you have, the, the more informed you are. So, uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's a crazy first question to break me in on. <laughs> well, there's a um, it, what's the, it's Carl Popoff, isn't it? Who's the guy from the 60s or 70s who said that the only way that you can actually prove so, you, you can't actually prove something to be correct because you have an unending new proofs. The only way you can actually know if something is correct or not is to disprove it. And yeah, I'm not a scientist, but I spent the last six years of my career working with my co-CEO as a scientist. And he's a nerd like you. Um, he doesn't have your flair for shirts, I'll add. But, you know, he's a he's a bio what was it his his is geochemistry um and so i've learned all about the scientific approach very deeply the last six years and come to the same conclusion that everyone's making it up to some just with diff different sets of variables you know and yeah. 
And there's a lot of cognitive biases in, in the scientific world as well. I mean, there's such a thing as Christians for science, for science isn't there, in America? How does that work? I don't I know. I, just... I, think, I think, crikey, the second question is getting onto religion and science. Brilliant. Okay, all right. So, I mean, I think <laughs> we're all very good at is um, compartmentalizing our lives. And, you know, you, you can have the, uh, massive sort of contradictions in people's lives. You know, like, well, you look at America now, it's all sort of pro-life but with all the guns. I mean, yeah. it, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, they're saving lives so they can be shot at in their schools. I mean, well, it's absolutely nonsensical when you think about it. And I guess from that point of view, when you look at religious approaches and, and science, may, maybe that's what scientists who are religious do. They, they just compartmentalize it. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. I mean, I, I'm an atheist, but, um, you know, I, I respect people's views. And I think in, in a world where, you can be anything, just try and be nice. I mean, as long as it's not harming anyone, let people believe what they want. So, Yeah, the uh, the US right now is like the the, the ultimate kind of um, display, I think, of a society that has gone so far off the rails that you can pick and choose a thousand different uh, subsets of its cultures and find something wrong with it at the moment. It's just, it, there's contradictions everywhere. Right, everywhere yeah. you look. I lived there for six uh, years before I came here to Bali. Bali's so much simpler. People are just getting on with their lives and, um, you know, day to day, it's yeah. ceremony, ceremony, do your work, enjoy, be with your family and, and, and the likes. Um, and so, yeah, for me, I, I don't think I'll be going back into the US any day soon. Um, uh, I didn't mean to hit you straight with religion and politics, <laughs> and I'm not, uh, which is why I'm not going to go deeper into it, even though they're two of my favorite subjects. Um, but the science piece we do have to go deep into because you are a proper scientist and you are a single cell genomicist. Yeah, that's right. That's my official title. So what the hell uh, is that? I got... what, what, what's a single cell oh. genome and what the hell does a genomicist do? Oh, God, right. <laughs> Another cracker. Okay. All right. So to get to that stage and that job title, it took about 20 years and it's a very meandering path. Um, so I, 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 oh God, right, okay. I probably have to rewind and go all the way back to the beginning. Well, I was about um, to say, did you, did when you were four years old I, and you were, were you no, thinking I didn't when, want I to grow, do that. when I grow up, I want to be a single cell genomicist? <laughs> Am I even pronouncing yeah. it correctly, genomicist? Yeah, I, I, not many people actually say genomicist, so oh. uh, you can say it how you like because you just sort of. You know, I'm making it up. Yeah, are, are you making it up, Mike? Mike? Are you even a scientist? Is this all bullshit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I think we all suffer from imposter syndrome. I think. <laughs> yeah, I saw somebody say that today. Actually, that everyone in, in, suffers from imposter syndrome, and I went, "I bloody well do not." And then I went, mm, "That was probably my uh, my cover right yeah. there." I mean, I I think when I moved to Exeter University, one of the first gave talks i gave was uh i basically said look i'm an imposter consider this talk as therapy <laughs> and then i sort of outlined everything i did and how i didn't know what i was doing when i was doing it but it all made sense in the end and I, I, you know i think it's, it's looking back it's really easy to make sense of my career it's just that when you live it day to day none of it makes sense you know i'm kind of uh i've just i always had two rules in my research group you either do cool or lucrative science ideally both um I like so, I like that. Those are those are really good rules of thumb. Cause, yeah, because I mean, there's there's an endless amount of frames or rules of thumb that you could put on the type of science that you're doing. But cool or lucrative, 
Does that yeah, not no, think, does that not pigeonhole you though into I don't know working only for Tesla or because no, not at all. Um, not all cool science doesn't have to be expensive science. Ah, okay. Yeah, um, but the lucrative stuff does. <laughs> yeah, the lucrative stuff can can support the cool stuff. You know, it, it provides you with the resource. You know, it's like doing a deal with the devil, isn't it? You know, I'll do your work for you, which may not interest me, but you'll give me the resources to do mm. the work that I can do on the site. So, you know, that, that's the sort of approach I take. Um, you know, That's 99% of the employed working world, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, probably. <laughs> All right, so you're not, yeah, getting off the hook. you're not getting off the hook here, though, because there's people going to be listening going, no, 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 he didn't, let, he didn't answer the question. What the hell is a single-cell genomicist? Tell okay, us what so a single-cell single- genome is first. All right, a single-cell genome is exactly, you know, break it down. You know what all those words mean. Put them together, and, and it's exactly <laughs> the same thing. So a single is one on its own. Uh, a cell mm. is the smallest unit of life, and a genome is the genome that's contained inside of it. So basically, I, you know, my job title is officially I'm an associate professor of single-cell genomics, um, and I work on, uh, I, oh, God, how to say this? Do you, want me to help, I, do you want me to help you? Mike works on genomic proto, proteomic, proteomic transcriptomic, and metabolomic <laughs> approaches. Yeah, yeah. So it's not going to get any better with me, is it? You no, better so, do. <laughs> you better I, help I here. To, I work to understand uh, how cells work, and when when you think about um, a lot of scientific approaches, when you know, scientists go out and they sample the natural environment, for example, and then they combine everything together, extract compounds from it like DNA or RNA or metabolites, you know, and, and then they look at them. And then essentially what we're looking at is is, is a, an amalgamation of noise of lots of different things. Even if you have a one culture with one type of bacteria or algae or virus in it, you have hundreds, thousands, millions of different types of algae viruses and bacteria in it so by going to the single cell you actually remove all the noise so it's like um you know everything we do when we we sort of profile cells and and cultures is an average of every cell in there so if you had a a culture of 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 bacteria growing for example you'll have some that are dividing some that have just divided some that aren't dividing at all some that are dying some that are thriving some that are nutrient limited even in a flask that's mixing that looks homogenous there's always that sort of natural variation. That's why we do technical replicates and scientific replicates is to get rid of that noise and average it all out. But with single cell genomics and single cell approaches, you don't have any of that noise. What is, is. It's the true signal, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I get that. But is the is it not the case, though, if you take a cell out from the organism, that it's like the old metaphor of a bunch of blind men trying to study, tell you what an elephant is. One's got the tail, one's got the trunk. And they both think it's, one thinks it's a skinny snake and the other thinks it's a fat snake. Yeah. And each of those blind men is right. But then how do you, <laughs> but but they're right about their part. I'm trying to understand how it works because I'm, I, I don't, I've never studied yeah. cells like you have. Okay. Um, so how does it work from a perspective of you take a cell out of the organism and then you and well, how do you I, I, as an environmental microbiologist most of what i work on is single cell organisms anyway okay okay the, so the, well, the, that makes it convenient doesn't it <laughs> it does make it very convenient but the, the actual technique itself 
is applicable to multicellular organisms. So, for example, you know, every cell in your body is not acting the same right now. You have muscle cells that are acting like muscle cells, heart cells, like hearts, you know. When you get cells my li- going out my liver, of control, my liver, my liver's working overtime. Yeah, your liver will be working overtime. You know, people. You know, if, if you know, pe- people suffer from infections, so those cells will be responding differently. People get cancers where the cells go out of control. So, what single cell genomics allows you to do is identify individual cells and exactly what they're doing. So, I mean, you know, every cell has the right information the same similar information to all the other cells but they're not all acting the same and and that's what single cell genomics allows you to do is see what things are are acting differently and and why and you study them under a microscope uh i have microscopes i use lots of things to study them um a a lot of the things that i so i work on viruses a lot a lot of viruses you can't work on those with a light microscope so we work with those with um electron microscopes and, and possibly the coolest thing I own in my lab, which is an atomic force microscope, which is pretty damn cool. Well, how, um, let, let me come on to that, how that works, because I really want to know, and I want to know why you can't use light microscopes. But my, okay. my question about studying a cell in that form is that if you're, let's discount single cell for a moment, and then, then we'll come back into that. If you study the, a cell outside of the organism, does it behave differently than when it's in the organism? Is it not a bit lost? It's not like separating it from its pack. Uh, so in the context of your question, when you say an organism, if you, if you remove a single cell from a multicellular organism yep. and look at it, yep. um, does it, yes, behave it differently? will act differently. It, it'll be in a different environment. So essentially, a multicellular organism, like, you know, like us, we're, we're just a, a big environment for our individual cells. Um, yes, it will act differently, which is why a lot of the time we sort of freeze the profiles before we take them out. So we'll okay. just sort of take a snapshot. So I don't know. Sorry, I clicked my fingers. I don't know if that's a horrific sound on a podcast. <laughs> no, it's I good. Won't do it's, that again. It's, it, has, <laughs> it, it gives gravitas. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so then coming back to the single cell organism, it, it must be a lot easier to study them or, or actually do you miss a load of variables uh, that would help in the study? Yeah, there's advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is you get rid of all that noise. What you see is real. It's real for that cell. That cell is living that moment. So that cell may be experiencing some sort of nutrient limitation. It may be experiencing some sort of environmental shock. Um, but whatever you see is real. Um, the downside is you're dealing with a single cell, so you haven't got much material to work with. Um, and, and that's why you need sort of specialists in it, because you need really sort of um, high-tech equipment, which is sensitive enough to deal with one cell. And you need an environment to work in that is totally devoid of contamination, because if, as soon as you look at your sample, you're contaminating it. So, for example, um, the facility that I used to work in to do single-cell genomics was a, a, a clean room which was not just a, a tidy, cleaned room. I mean, it had seven HEPA filtration units on it and had, I think it was about, last time we counted, about 15 particles under 0.2 microns in size per cubic meter. It's the sort of cleanliness that goes beyond microchip manufacture. And that's because as soon as you sort of have a single cell and you're trying to amplify a message from it, you don't want any contamination in there. So 
it's you know it, you, you go into like it's almost like forensic police forensics but you cannot afford to make a mistake i'm really sorry for asking this but the question someone listening has got to have the same thinking process as me on this one but <laughs> what happens if you fart in there do you have to wear charcoal underwear or something to stop that from... <laughs> uh, that's not the most obvious question of it, and I've never been asked that. You're joking. Um, that's like, so, that's the first thing that comes to mind in a room with seven HEPA filters. Funnily enough, I'll come back to the fart question. Look, the, I, right, I'll answer the question and then I'll come back to farts, because that actually is a story from my PhD. But um, right. but in, 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 the, in the room that you you do these uh this research in you, you wear sort of non-shedding um they look a bit like uh crime scene investigator suits um so you look like a stay puff man you know the big white mm-hmm. decorators overalls and it i mean for me i don't have to wear a hair net um but anyone with with hair on their head has to have to wear a, a beard mask but even then you're still shedding you know even the bits of sort of skin that you can see are, are still in there so as soon as you you move into a single cell genomics facility you you contaminate it all it's just about managing that contamination working very quickly and smoothly and and sort of preventing and yourself from damaging your sample it, it, it's because a, a lot of people think that science is very dangerous and you know like you see people wearing lab coats and glasses and things like that and sometimes we do use dangerous chemicals and reagents and things, and that's why we have personal protective equipment on, you know. But in this instance, we're protecting our samples from us, not us from our sample. So it, it, it's turning that on its head. So do you wear charcoal charcoal underwear, charcoal packs? I, there's no need. And, you okay. know, you, you can hold it in for a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> Depends how much curry you ate the night before. Well, go on then, give us the PhD story on your farting. Well, I'm assuming well, it's your farting. Uh, it's my boss, my PhD advisor, actually. He, we had a, a really in-depth discussion once on... So I, I did my PhD working on E. coli, um, which is an enteric bacteria that, you know, uh, that you, everyone has in their guts. And we were having a conversation one day about how disgusting gyms were. Um, you know, you think about, you know, if you've ever been to a gym and you're on the treadmill and you're sweating... Um, you know, and you get that sweat running down your back and between your ass cheeks. And then, of course, it runs down your leg, really, doesn't it? And then you're thinking, right, well, you're just spreading enteric bacteria everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you think about these things, you'd, you'd never go out of the house. But, you know, I mean, it's lovely now. You know, I go to my local gym and because of COVID, everyone's cleaning everything all the time. Um, you know, in, in many ways, we're sort of hyper obsessed with it. But we did get on to the... Uh, topic of general hygiene and one of the things is if you fart you know there, there will be bacteria associated with that and how thick do your underpants and your jeans have to be before no bacteria come through and then you we started a conversation about when you wiping your ass with toilet paper you know you think how thin <laughs> toilet paper is you know and, and you think all right you know when you're a student you're using that sort of sheet stuff and that's probably the best stuff and then you sort of become a, a, a proper functioning member of society and you're using double ply you know that's quality stuff but it's very it's very fragile stuff but maybe maybe the best thing is is three ply luxurious stuff because you know if you, th- you think about when you, you you clean up anything in the kitchen you have a like a, a tea towel or anything like that you can feel what you're mm. touching through the, the cloth how many times do you have to fold that over before you're not in contact with it i guess the end story is wash your hands after you wipe <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, to be to add to that, seeing as we've got to that stage in the conversation so quickly, I haven't actually used toilet paper in over two years in here in Bali because nobody uses it except to pat down and dry. You use hoses, right? And all of the right, okay. The toilets have these amazing upward jet systems with six different speeds, or you have a hand hose, and yeah. typically you're squatting and everything's wide open to exposure and. You uh, you spray the living daylights out. It's much more hygienic than paper. I go to the west, and I mean, I was in I was in the, um, uh, I was in Singapore a couple of weeks ago, and I used a toilet there and had to use toilet paper, and it's it's kind of gross, you know. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, I mean, there are a lot of things that humans do that are pretty gross. I mean, the toilet paper is a bit of a weird one, you know. I totally get where you're coming from. I mean. Washing with water, we need bidets. Yeah, but you know, you know, I mean, the worst thing we do is, you know, like when you think about what we do with our kids, you know, and and disposable nappies. You think, you know, you take your, you know, for those people listening to this who are lucky enough to have children and and survive that, you know, you you take this wonderful being that you've created and lovingly nurtured, you know, and, and you, you know, and and you wrap it in a essentially a piece of plastic and you know in in the you know when you change a nappy you put a nappy on and then nine times out of ten they then they go for a poo you know that nappy's on for 10 20 minutes and we take it off wipe up and then wrap this lovely turd in a plastic case and then send it to landfill where it'll be preserved for five or six hundred years. You know, our, our, our children's 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 children will have their bodies degrading before that plastic degrades. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, that's what we do. I mean, you know, and, and you know, society has changed where it's all about convenience, isn't it? You know, it, when do we get to that stage where that is acceptable? When, when you look at what we're doing, you know, I, I think that for me with, with sort of plastic is, is crazy. I mean, plastic is, is vilified and said to be an awful material. And it's not. It's an absolutely brilliant material. It's just our application of it and our uses of it are disgusting. I and mean, that's what we need to think about. You know, we, we, we use plastic for single-use objects. That should never have been the case, you know? So, so here in Bali, we have a... We have a farm next behind this office. Uh, so yep. we're working on regenerative organic practices. We're testing lots of bacterial fertilizers, all organic, okay. uh, in different ways with different soil. So we're testing those bacteria on the old rice paddy fields that have been sprayed with chemicals for the last 40 years, 30 years. Um, yep. we're, we're testing it with manure. We're testing it on straw. We're testing, 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 testing to see which works best but we have a stream next to it i say stream it's about a meter and a half wide can flow uh, sometimes 80 centimeters deep and quite fast uh it's called it's part of the subak system so we call it the subak in bali and we have garbage traps in it because when i moved here i started seeing the amount of garbage that was going down into the ocean and it breaks my heart i mean i'm an you know i'm an unintended environmentalist but i am one at my core i can't see a piece of litter without picking it up difficult here because you spend your whole day just bent over um i put we put litter traps in and i was really surprised to find on day one about 30 pounds of garbage overnight caught on the trap and at least a half dozen disposable nappies 
And I mentioned this to a friend here who has been working in this whole garbage solution for a number of years. And they said there's thousands and thousands of nappies every day that are thrown into the into the water systems here. And it's actually cultural in that there's a very strong belief in Indonesia, not just in Bali, that if you don't throw the diaper into the river, the child will get nappy rash. So it's this superstition. Mm. And I thought about this and I thought this, you know, that's ridiculous because these diapers are actually um, disposable diapers are a very new thing here. So how does a, a superstition develop a new one? Because typically they're going out of fashion superstitions. They're not coming into fashion. They're from an older world. And then I realized, of course, that actually probably 30, 40 years ago before disposables, if you didn't wash the cloth nappies that the kids were wearing in the rivers, they were getting nappy rashes and they were getting probably infections and, and the like. So it's just this, it's converted from wash the cloth nappy in or the child's arse in the river to mm. now you have to throw this disposable diaper into it and of course these things by the time they hit the water the traps they're these big soggy half shit filled they're just <laughs> the most gross i mean that's not the I mean, you know we get human turds all the time in our garbage traps and yeah. there were chickens yesterday because they would get sacrificed here it's a real i mean you gotta have a strong stomach to be able to stand in with your wellies and dig this out every single twice a day actually um but yeah. we're talking about talking about plastics and i could talk about the amount of that that's going on but um in your family you're not actually the smart one are you your daughter's the smart one <laughs> well yeah isn't I'm she, probably the isn't she smart. Ena- isn't, yeah isn't she enabling you to come up with new scientific um processes yeah well yeah it's, it's been it's just sort of you don't want to sort of force your kids into science do you as a scientist but you want to sort of uh you know steer them in the direction if they, if they could could make it that way and you know um yeah that, that, that's a nicely primed conversation starter so yeah I, we we moved house about six years ago and um but I'd, I'd i'd worked in a marine lab for about uh 14 years or 13 years at that point but i'd always lived inland on on on, on dartmoor uh, and then we moved to the coast for a sort of change of lifestyle, you know, just to so the kids could go to school with my wife, who's a teacher, and we'd see them a bit more. And so, we, we, long story short, we we moved to the coast, and and uh, I suddenly suddenly developed a, a, a connection with the, with the ocean far more than I had just working in a marine lab. Because as a single cell genomicist and molecular biologist, I'm in the lab all the time, and a tiny little bit of volume is enough for me, I, you know. So I, I bought a book to try and learn about the shoreline and, and learn a bit more marine biology. Cause I, I wasn't a marine, I wasn't trained as a marine biologist, you know, before I, I became a marine biologist. So, um, and I bought a book on the shoreline. Then I got into seaweeds and I'd, I'd always worked on microalgae, um, but before then, and, uh, yeah, I thought, well, I'll, I'll learn some science with the kids. So I'd walk along the beach with the kids and we'd sort of, we had a little, I've got, got the book somewhere around here, but we had a, a, a book on the seaweeds, uh, Brit, Brit, seaweeds of the British Isles, I think it was called. And we had uh, lovely stickers with hearts and, and smiley faces on. And when we saw a seaweed, we'd stick a sticker on the page and we'd tick it off in a, on our list. And our aim was to get 10 seaweeds, then it was 20, then it was 30. And I think we're up to about 60 or 70 now, just from our local beach. There are that many seaweeds um, in the UK. Yeah, people just 
don't look. I mean, we, it's only when you start looking closely that you actually start seeing them. Um, and and it's sort of turned into a, a bit of a sort of family project now. And I, I started what I call the seaweed apothecary, which is we started sampling the seaweeds and I took them into work, put them in a minus 80 freezer and then freeze dried them. So basically preserved them without water in little jam gels. In fact, I've got some of those around here somewhere as well. I'll, I'll have to find those for you later. Um, and it looks looks beautiful. looks like, you know, like a little lovely sort of spice rack. Um, but it's become an amazing resource for scientists now. So pe people are always asking me if they can sort of uh, get a couple of grams of this, a couple of grams of that for a scientific experiment. So, I, you know, I, I sort of share them freely because ultimately it, it's cost me nothing to collect them. It's just an enjoyable pastime with the kids. Um, and one of the projects we were doing at the time um, was on fuels, converting seaweeds into fuels. And my daughter was walking along and she was getting annoyed because when you pick up lots of seaweeds, quite often there's sort of plastic associated with it. We, we get a lot around here of uh, old fishing gear because um, we're just up from Brixham, which is a, a sort of fishing harbour. And there was lots of sort of nylon twine wrapped around the seaweeds. And, and my daughter sort of made a comment of kind of like, oh, God, can't. And, and I was quite proud of that, actually, because she, she turned a scientific technique into a verb. And she said, Dad, can't we just hydrothermally liquefy uh, this, this seaweed with the plastic? And I was like, no, you can't do that. Don't be silly. I think she was about eight, eight at the time. And I sort of got home and thought, actually, she might be onto something there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I, I spoke to a colleague about it who, who did, did the conversions. And his initial reaction was, no, nah, it wouldn't work. And then he was like, but it might. So we just tried it out and it worked beautifully. And we found that if we put the plastic in on its own, nothing happened. But if you put the plastic in with the seaweed, then it converted beautifully. Um, so the can, seaweed can, was sorry, catalyzed can, in the conversion. Yeah, carry on. But catalyzed into uh, what? What's oh, so what we, we were using two components. Uh, so we were using a process called hydrothermal liquefaction. So yeah, you, need hydro to, you need to explain that because your eight-year-old yeah, knows I'm, it, but I'm we don't. There. Just let yeah. me, you're always interrupting. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. There's just so um, many, so many points in this that I need to clarify. <laughs> so it's a process called hydrothermal liquefaction so hydro means water or you know wet thermal using heat and liquefaction is just basically sort of liquefy everything and basically we, we would put seaweed into this container uh pressurize it and heat it up and then it would get get converted back into an oil basically uh, uh and you get a an, an aqueous phase where all the nitrogen and phosphorus was you get a gas and, and you get a char and in a char. And this is a process we were developing for fuel and fertilizer production from seaweed. Um, and then we sort of started playing around with plastic in it as well and found that, I mean, we were really lucky, actually. The first plastic we tried converted beautifully. Um, uh, after that, we tried other plastics and they didn't convert so well. So we, we, it was one of these eureka moments that was sort of followed a, a couple of years later when we actually had the proper funding to do it. Where, uh, it was like... Oh, it doesn't quite work as well as we want. But the actual idea came from an eight-year-old who said something that said something naively that made us think differently, if you know what I mean. And, and I think that's the that's a real problem. I think with science sometimes is we we know what we know and we know what we think we know, and sometimes we dismiss some really obvious things. And I think that's been a a sort of theme in my career really is because I hopped around lots of different subjects 
I don't know what I don't know. And I, I quite often ask the naive questions and I take a stupid approach to things. And quite often that allows me to make breakthroughs that other people wouldn't because they're not stupid enough to try what I would do. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I've studied complexity. Yeah, it does completely. I've, I've studied complexity science up to a certain point. I mean, I'm, I'm not a complexity scientist, but I've taught it as well in classes in, as it related to a, my previous business, which was training resilience in organizations. And um, Dave Snowden, who is one of the leading professors in complexity science, um, I've followed his work for many years, actually worked with his organization. And one of the um, studies that he quotes a lot is the gorilla in the lungs. Have you ever heard about that? So no, if you not. so if you if you if you uh, get it, I think it was thirty-two radiologists specialists in looking for a very specific type of lung tumor. You show them an X-ray of the lungs, and you ask them to look for that tumor. And they look for it. They spend five minutes, and they say, "No, it's free of that tumor." Great. Was there anything else there that stood out? And I think it's it's less than thirty percent of them will say, well, yeah, there's a tiny gorilla in the left lung that's been put in there. It's less than 30%, right? And so if you show the same uh, x-ray to a bunch of people you just pulled off the street who've never seen an x-ray in their life, don't know anything about lung cancer, they all see it. They all go, oh, yeah, okay, there's a gorilla in the lungs. That's funny. Ha, ha, ha. And what the point of the study is, or the study is pointing at is that the more expert we become, the less light we are to look for novelty and to look for uh, it's uh, Dave calls it side casting, which is looking for adjacent possibles rather than very linear. Like this has to lead to this, to this, to this. And, and I've seen that with a lot of, of experts that they just can't see uh, the cliche outside of the box and the box yeah. is often very tight. It sounds like you are very good at side casting and seeing gorillas. Um, yeah, I'm probably more better at being a layman in different scientific areas because I, I don't, yeah, I, I naturally see the gorillas because I have no idea what I'm doing half the time. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sure your students are going to be absolutely thrilled to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> They'll survive. <laughs> they, they kind of work it out there already. I, th- I think that's the first, you know, I think that's the, mo- the, the first, the first, um, uh, quality in maturity is being able to acknowledge that you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, I, I'm developing. I have a, a sort of student-led project that I've been. I think I've had about four or five different students work on it over the last fifteen years, called Rumsfeldian Science. And um, it, and I, I, I give them all the quote from Donald Rumsfeld on, on the known unknowns and the known knowns and the unknown known 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 known. <laughs> and and I I. I try and get them thinking about a little project that I've been working on. So I, I know everything about this one gene that comes from this virus that I've been working on. I know where that gene is in the world. I know when it's expressed. I know where it's expressed inside cells and, and seasonal variation. Um, I've taken that gene, I've cloned it, and I've expressed it. I've made the protein. I've crystallized the protein. Um, I've made 3D printed models of the protein. I've held this protein structure in my hand. I know everything about this thing. I know where every atom is in the protein. And I know every nucleotide in the gene. I have no idea what it does, though. So 
as a philosophical debate, is it a known unknown or is it a known unknown or is it an unknown known? It's definitely not a known known because I don't know what it does. And I definitely think it's not an unknown unknown because I know too much about it. But uh, it, it's an interesting field. Uh, they always come to a different conclusion. <laughs> And they still don't know what it is. And I still don't know what it is. So how do you publish that? <laughs> well, it did stop Rumsfeld using that as a, for uh, an excuse to invade Iraq, did it? So, <laughs> Yeah, no, they did. But, uh, you know, maybe there'll be a, a use for this protein that, that'll come good. <laughs> I, I think it boils down to my and again this is my layman's understanding i've probably spent as much time in science in the last six years as most people who do a you know a master's degree and then don't do science beyond that um in it i've you know i've been surrounded by and working with scientists and and it seems every time is that at the end of the day fitness or utility beats reality you know you can know all the facts but if it doesn't work in the real world if there isn't something that is beneficial from it so what you know um and I, but I guess that's dif- difficult to say to somebody who's a researcher who researches for the sake of research. You're actually doing it for practical purposes, is my understanding. Yeah, we're, we're very, very applied in my group. And we're constantly, I actually take a very creative academic approach, but with an industrial mindset. So uh, we, we try and fail fast. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's something that a lot of academic scientists uh, fail to, to do is, is the, you know, that, that, there's a there's a challenge. There's an intellectual vanity over knowing more and understanding. And I mean, I, I, this is one thing I admire about a lot of my colleagues is they will hammer their head against that brick wall until they knock it over. Um, and and that takes a certain certain person to do that type of person and, and that sort of tenacious spirit and attitude. You know, you can devote your life to something, whereas I'll. I'll bang my head against a brick wall and then just sort of shuffle around the side and <laughs> walk to the left of it or find a sledgehammer. Um, it, it's a different approach. Um, and, you know, the, that works for me. It doesn't work for everyone. I mean, um, my head of department said, it's great having you in the department. I'm just glad that you're the only one. Uh, we can't have too many people like you. And I, I totally get that. You know, we can't all be the same. My approach is very creative, but it's also very disruptive. Um, it, it terrifies some people, mm. um, you know, to, you know, we, we got involved in, uh, some electrochemical processing of, of, uh, of liquids a few years back. And basically we apply a current into water and make micro bubbles. And then we use the bubbles to separate out the algae that were in the water. We we're trying to develop low cost, low energy separation technologies. And, um, I walked in and the, postdoc who was working on it at the time really talented bright chap i walked in behind him and said reverse the polarity just because i've always wanted to say that because i watched a lot of star trek as a kid <laughs> and he's like do you even know what that means in this context <laughs> i was like no, no not really <laughs> i'll leave all that to you you know he understood the whole thing he knew the equations i went just reverse the polarity for me he was like what do you mean i was like just just flip it on and off and put it in reverse and he was like all right and then he did it just to shut me up basically and um we found out something really interesting interesting chemistry happened in 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 the system and i we we'd sort of lost so what we were trying to do was separate out the cells and we were doing that really well and they were sort of floating at the top of the, the the liquid 
But when we reversed the polarity, when we did it, we killed a few of the cells and they broke apart. And the action of just, you know, a tiny percentage of the cells breaking apart stabilized the flotation of the rest of the cells. They basically banged it up. And so it was an amazing phenomenon that we saw. We were like, hang on, that's brilliant. That we we just <laughs> discovered something really cool there. Just just because I said reverse the polarity, and and you know we went away and thought about it. I was like, what what's happening here? And then sort of the, the, the guy solved it and said, look, it's, it's cellular material, it's proteins that are binding up and stabilizing the flock. If we can, we don't need to reverse the polarity, but we can add something in that will actually mimic that effect. So we like we need a cheap, bountiful source of of, of protein and fats. So. In the end, we were just adding a sprinkle of dried milk powder into our cultures. And we could stabilize and separate the cells out really, really easily and cheaply. Um, you know, it was taking seconds, whereas it would, before it was taking minutes. So, it, you know, just, just from having fun and not really understanding yeah. what was going on. You know, at the same time, you know, you have to be really, really careful, um, you know, in, in, in that you don't sort of do something dangerous. Um, <laughs> which is the downside of that approach. So we always have to have health and safety and risk assess <laughs> risk assessment in mind when we do these things. But what comes to mind there is companies like Google who give their, their I mean, their core money-making systems have to be extremely clear and extremely methodical. And, you know, they're churning their money from their ads and from their data collection, their data cells. And, and that just runs as the big machine that it is. But they also encourage their staff and give them time off for creative ideas. Mm. And um, you're the first person that I've actually ever heard say that fun is a benefit to science in this way. You know, typically, and I'm an, I'm <laughs> an outsider looking in, it, it is as, I, it's, I'm not, I wouldn't say boring because it can be fascinating for many people, but it's extremely straight, it's extremely square, it's extremely methodical. Whereas, yeah, so many scientific discoveries have come from eureka moments, right? They've come from serendipity. They've come from mistakes. They've come from not cleaning out the culture and all of a sudden you've got mold growing and penicillin or, you know, uh, the likes. So maybe you should start a new campaign of, of, uh, of novelty and fun and disruption in science. Yeah, I mean, it, like I say, you can't have everyone doing it because it's very disruptive. And it's not really, like I said, you have to be very disciplined and fail fast. Um, you, you know, you can only have, uh, you can only keep keep doing these things and, and, and to a certain point where you think, right, I need to commit proper time and resource and energy into this. Is this a goal or not? But there's nothing wrong with just messing around in an area and just sort of scoping out the landscape, essentially. You know, there, there's been, you know, but people think that this, it takes a lot of money to play. It really doesn't. It, you know, you can you can do science very very cheaply, and you can do creative science very cheaply. You know, we, we make bioreactors and stuff like that with you know bottles and gaffer tape and stuff. You know, the, the point is it needs to work once so we can work out whether it's worth investing in it properly. Um, and 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 I, I think that's an approach that is possibly being lost in science because we're becoming too specialised too soon and we're sort of not uh, the people going into science now it's all about impact and measuring and metrics and putting numbers on things you, you can't put a number on creativity it 
you know, you, you, <laughs> most of it is going to go nowhere. And there's a lot of pressure on scientists to deliver now. And they, they, I, th I think a lot of people don't feel they can play because they haven't got the time. And, and I think that's really sad. You need the backing of someone like Bill Gates, don't you? Really, to be a good scientist? We've had the backing of Bill Gates before. No um, way. Tell us about that and how you met him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a coincidence. Uh, oh, oh, I think you've got a primary sheet, haven't you? Um, yeah, it didn't go brilliantly, to be honest. Um, it was in, very interesting working with them. So we were working on a, a biofuels technology. Like, like I said earlier, the, the dewatering technologies, we, um, we, we were working on a, a high-throughput liquid processing technology, which is sounds really complicated, um, but it was actually really, really simple. Uh, it was a propeller in a tube. Um, and when you put a propeller in a tube, you create a vortex. Um, and as everyone knows, if you want to mix up or do any reaction, you mix it. You know, you, you, you stir a bowl, you know, like when you pull the plug on a, on a sink, you get a vortex forming naturally. It's nature's way of mixing things very efficiently. And we were using this technology uh, in what we call a vortex bioreactor to try and make biofuels. So we put microalgae in solution into a vortex bioreactor and then use the vortex to break apart cells and do the transesterification reaction and make the lipids and then use the property of the vortex, which is throwing the light material to the center to take the lipids out in a, in a sort of in a suction manifold. So it's a, a one pot, one step process for liquid biofuels that was going to revolutionize uh, planetary biofuel production. It, it never went anywhere because uh, there were about 28 technical challenges which we met, uh, but just not in a line. Uh, we can never get it working. But one of them was, could you just take a cell and break it apart? Simple thing. Could you take a cell and break it apart in a vortex? And um, we were working, like I said, we were working on microalgae at the time which uh, to, to get the lipids out of them. And you, we just couldn't grow enough algae. So you can grow bacteria overnight really simply. So we started using E. coli as a proxy, just as any old cell. And we put E. coli in and we were trying to break it apart. And, and my uh, another awesome, talented postdoc. That I'm very much standing on the shoulders of, of my team when I present all this work. Uh, and another postdoc who was working with me said, well, we could put um, copper powder in there uh, and use the copper to, to break the cells apart. Um, but then we were worried about um, uh, copper toxicity because then we couldn't get the top copper out. So we put the copper in a, a seaweed extract, alginate, which is also used in food fillers. So we had copper powder inside a little alginate bead that we were making. These beads are about three or four millimeters across that we used to make with a syringe, just pushing it out. And um, we put them into a vortex bioreactor and we, we killed the E. coli within seconds. And we're like, yay, brilliant, job done. We ticked that box off. Now we need, let's go back to the algae. And then we were like, hang on, that's, that's kind of a really cool observation that we could kill E. coli. And then we thought, well, would this be better as a sanitation technology mm. rather than a biofuel production technology? So we wrote a two-pager to, to Bill Gates and his grand challenges um, uh, proposal scheme. And now uh, we got $100,000 to test the idea out. And, it worked, so we, we went for a million dollars, but they, they said, oh, you worked out a bit too fast, so we'll give you another 100,000 to do something else with it. And then we went through a few rounds of funding with them, tested the Vortex bioreactor out on four or five continents, 
I mean, we, we North America, South America, in Europe, where we were, of course, um, uh, South Africa, India. Our system went around the world and, and became this sort of really cool technology for, for basically sterilizing wastewater. So it's pretty cool. It's not been commercialized yet. I mean, when I say commercialized. It's not been uh, industrialized yet. We, we always said we'd give it away for free for humanity, uh, you know, for the good of humanity. But um, unfortunately, we we went so far down one route, and we the the first key step we we were stuck into with our research. We need to go back and redo it all. But the potential is there. It's an amazing, amazing kit, you know, for, especially in the developing world, where all you need is a a pipe and a propeller. You know, but is it? Just the vortex, or is it the copper being added as well that kills the E. coli? It's, it's that that was the elegant thing. We never really knew how it was working so well. So the vortex means that you get massive turbulence and massive sort of contact. When we put the copper in on its own, it didn't work as well as it did when it was embedded in the alginate. So what we actually think, our, our theory, which we have very little evidence for, but I think it's a pretty damn good theory, is... Um, the copper, when it's embedded in the alginate beads, is uh, acting like it's in a dry environment. So me metallic surfaces, you know, like, um, you know, like we, all, all our door knockers used to be brass and things. You never get any bacterial contamination on those because mm. the metals are, you know, bacteriocidal. You know, the, now we have plastic everywhere and we have contamination everywhere. But me metallic surfaces are, are bacteriocidal. When you get them wet, you lose that bactericidal activity, so, uh, you know, it drops down. So what we actually think is that it's mimicking a dry environment, but in an aqueous environment, and we mix that in, combine that with the mixing of the vortex, and you're just getting absolute crazy kill rates. I mean, we even tried it with um, Dinococcus radiodurans, which is the, it's known as Conan the bacteria. It's the bacteria that lives on the side of nuclear reactor cores. You know, this thing is indestructible, and we could absolutely tear this thing apart within i think it was about for dinococcus it was about 20 seconds whereas e coli it was half a second or less it was absolutely amazing result why is that not being used all over the world to prevent communicable um, diseases got well diarrhea the, the, the program we were in with the gates foundation was um we, we were funded in the reinvent the toilet campaign <laughs> they have all the best names um so for them, they were about um, creating value from feces, basically, and you know they had their um, processes to um, create fuel from it, fertilizers, just do something useful with it, and valorize sanitation, essentially. Um, our technology dealt with the wastewater that was coming out. If you want to do anything intelligent with poo. You need to get rid of the water first. You know, the, the water is crap for processing things because, you know, it makes everything bulky and, and inefficient, very energy intensive. So you have to get rid of the contaminating water, which is where our technology fit in. So that's why I think the Gates Foundation funded us, is that we were a sort of one-size-fits-all uh, technique for processing the water. But then they went down a different route and, and, and we sort of lost momentum there. And I went back to being a marine biologist. But we published it all. I think we put about four or five papers out on it. And people still get in touch with me about the Vortex bioreactor. And I sort of send them all the plans and stuff. And I, I hope that someone in the sanitation sector um, picks up on it. But it just needs, 
you have to understand that the, the water industry, especially in the, the developed world, is making so much money um, that there's very little push for innovation um, and change. Because why would you change anything that's making you so much money? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of politics involved there. I think there's a lot of sort of, um, you know, virtue signaling, or oh, we want to develop innovative technologies. But in reality, I mean, what's changed in the UK in, in water processing for the last hundred years? I mean, we're still using Victorian sewer systems and, you know, reservoirs that are hundreds of years old. You know, they, nothing is really changing in the water industry. That's why we thought we could make more of an impact in the developing world. But um, it, it it's just really difficult when you don't really know the field that well and like i said you know i'm a, a, a sort of an imposter in the sanitation field um so what we really need is that sector to pick up what we've done and, and run with it really and i hope they will it's all out there freely available for them to see. I'd, l- I'd love to see that after this podcast i'd like to see more on that because i might have a few fits that we could put that yeah, in front of cool. um did you ever meet bill gates i did meet bill gates briefly it didn't go particularly well um i'd flown to <laughs> seattle <laughs> for the reinvent the to- <laughs> reinvent the toilet fair and um we were very much on the, <laughs> the periphery of the fair because like i said earlier we weren't a technology that was really addressing their problem we were a technology that enabled the solutions that they they were trying to develop to to work in the real world and um i was a little bit disappointed that he was only spending about half hour at the fair as a walkthrough and he was going to the three main people that he that were winning prizes um i think they were from mit and caltech and places like that you know some really awesome stuff on display but i um i I thought well look i've just flown thousands of miles to be here the least thing you can do is have a a photo by (laughs) the vortex (laughs) bioreactor and uh he was sort of walking by (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on his way to see the people that he wanted to see so i sort of stepped in between all his people and um sh- shook his hand and said can you come over here and have a look at this and um it's, i suddenly realized that i'd sort of created <laughs> a security risk and all the people the previous day who'd been asking me about my technology uh they, they weren't really interested in the technology i think they were security people who were vetting me as a security risk because all of a sudden <laughs> they sort of moved in to protect it <laughs> whereas i'm in the middle of this sort of security huddle uh still shaking his hand at this point and i said oh, uh will, will you come and have a look at this and he said uh i'll come back later and i was like yeah, okay you know sure you do but um he, he, he never, never did back. that's not he his never. fault it's not his fault but um, well. <laughs> yeah, the, the chap who was walking behind him uh, found it really, really funny. And he stopped to have a chat. Um, and uh, it turns out that he was the Prince of Orange, uh, who's now the King of Holland. Oh, so wow. he, he said one of the funniest things he'd seen, uh, uh, the, the kerfuffle that I caused. Um, it's a shame, it's a shame I, you didn't have this shirt on at the time, because he would have appreciated it even more. Well, look, look, I'll tell you what, look, I've got an algae here that you might like. So, so this is oh wow look at that is that, red, that, that is an actual why do you have algae next to your uh computer uh, in your home is that to show me please tell no. me it's not something you just collect at home are you in an office space or right now well, I'm, so i've covid sort of changed everything for me i have an office at home now but we don't have a spare room so i'm actually in the the, the corridor so if i that's the toilet and that's got the it 
Got it. So that's where you store the algae. Yeah. And well, that's not just on my uh, windowsill. So te- yeah, but my- tell us, tell us about the algae because it's something that you're uh, big into. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I've yeah. seen a number of videos showing the benefits of spirulina and algae for cleaning out pollutants and waste spills and potential energy and potential biofuels. And but none of it seems to be scaling. None of it seems to be really working as a solution. Um, yeah. Well, th- this algae is actually. Oh, just looking at the name on it. Uh, Rockpool Isolate. Hey, this actually, this was isolated by my son from a from our local beach. Um, and actually, what's he, th- he, what's he thought, three, four years old? Uh, he, he's uh, eleven now, but he was <laughs> he was seven or eight when he isolated that. Oh, um, all right. <laughs> so we, we were we were down at the beach, and there was a a rock pool that had become isolated, and it got very warm, and it had grown algae. And he came running over and went, Dad, Dad, there's a really cool algal bloom in there. So we had a look at it. And I thought, yeah, this look, looks quite nice. And he was like, come on, let's go and have a look at it in the lab at home. Because we've got a microscope here. And um, so he looked around, found a, a, an old Coke bottle that had been washed up, opened the top, rinsed it out, took the water. And then uh, I took it into the lab. And then another talented postdoc of mine, uh, separated out all the different algae in there, and I we grew about thirty or forty of them off onwards. And this is one that's really sort of very, very robust, very hardy. So it goes, it starts off, it grows green, grows like um, like a, a really deep green. And then as it gets old, it produces a lot of pigments, um, carotenoids. Um, it's, it's a strain called Denaniella salina. So it's, it's a beautiful algae. So it's it's grown all around the world for in uh in salt ponds and things like that so it's very salt tolerant which is why it was growing here where does it get its energy from to convert from green into carotenoids uh so it's photosynthetic so it's taken just like plants so it's it's grown with sun's energy and it's scavenging nutrients from the environment and yeah it's it's a beautiful algae does it not need does it not need carbon dioxide as well Uh, it's in a enclosed jar isn't it yeah, that's actually, if you look at the top, it's, it's loose. So there's enough air transfer right. in there to Got get it. in. So they don't need much. So um, why, why algae? What's the benefit? I mean, for the person who's at home, who's like, what, what's this? scientist on wasting his time with oh, algae? Oh, look, you I should have started with this. <laughs> what's the, no, but what's the potential for it? Um, so I've been working on algae for about 20 years now. So... Um, microalgae are the sort of un, unsung heroes of the planet. So, you know, people always think that the oxygen they breathe is produced from the trees, you know, in the Amazon. But half the oxygen we produce that, that's produced on the planet is produced by algae in the sea. 70% no of the planet is ocean. Uh, it's, you know, there's life in the, the top couple of hundred meters, photosynthetic life, and they're producing all that oxygen. So, you know, next time you go to the gym and you're out of breath, Every other breath you take, that's oxygen that's coming from algae, and you didn't even appreciate that. So that they're the unsung heroes. They're sort of um, the the lungs of the planet, the real lungs of the planet. And I actually, academically, the work I do, uh, I work on viruses that infect them. So I take that a step step further. So you, once you open your eyes, people's eyes to algae, then I open their eyes to viruses, and they're even better. They're just awesome to work on. Um, you know, so, so viruses, if you take any, any water, seawater, you know, 
a milliliter of seawater will have a million viruses in it. You know, it, it, absolutely staggering. You know, there are 10 followed by 31 zeros. That's 10 to 31 viruses in our oceans. And I, I was saying earlier, my wife's a teacher and I sort of uh, zoomed into a, a science lesson for uh, primary school kids during COVID. And one of the things I did was I got them to write down the number of viral infections that occur every second in the ocean. And, you know, these are little kids. So I said, look, right, write a number one and then write 21 zeros after it. And, you know, if you write that number down, that's the number of viral, viral infections that are happening every second in our oceans. You realize that, you know, it's a microbial world we live in, but actually it's a viral world. These things are killing on a massive scale. And without that sort of constant cell death, all of our global ecosystems would sort of shut down. Basically, viruses are the ultimate nutrient mover. They're constantly cycling things. So when populations get stale and stagnant, that's when you get death and destruction, you know? So what you want is all the, the globe and the planet to constantly be living and dying. And, and that's what life is. And without viruses, it wouldn't be doing that. So, Having just lived through my first viral pandemic, shouldn't you be a bit cautious about your, <laughs> your descriptions of how great well, the viruses are? No, I shouldn't. Uh, viruses can kill us, but without viruses, we'd all be dead. So it's a we're, it's a uh, a kind of Faustian pact. We have to have it, even though we don't really. We have want to have it. viral infection on this planet. Without it, we would all be dead. Simple as. And so, and, and that's awful. That some viruses, you know, we folk, you know, how many viruses can you name? You know, you know, you could probably reel off twenty, thirty different viruses. They all infect humans, right? So yeah. everything alive on this planet has viruses that infect it. Probably hundreds of different viruses. It's, we live in a viral world, um, and and I totally understand it's devastating when we get them and they impact on us. But actually, without their relentless activity, life as we know it wouldn't exist. I mean, mammals wouldn't exist without the acquisition of viral genes. So, you know, if you think about um, why are mammals so different, is you know we have our young inside the female body without any sort of protection. It's in contact with the the the, the mother's body and you think well how does that actually work because it's it's a foreign body well actually humans acquired a, a, a gene from viruses called syncytin millions of years ago um let's say a, a mammalian ancestor did that i should say not humans um millions of years ago and that that viral protein does what it does in a virus which is down an immune system so it can survive Whereas human uh, mammalian organisms have now taken that gene and are using it to allow their young to live inside them for nine months. So it's amazing from that perspective. So although, you know, viruses get a bad rep, they're, they're not all bad. They so are sta positive. Your statement that we, we're dependent upon them, that's because they're breaking down a whole host of, like everything from insects to the algae to plants to... Yep. And that decomposes, that becomes the nutrients for the next round of life. Yep. So it's con everything's constantly growing. When, everything, when nothing's growing, nothing's living. And, what, and so w viruses versus bacteria in that process, because I would have thought bacteria were that agent. I never really thought of viruses as being the ones that actually were the catalyst. So why, why would a bacteria, you know, 
so bacteria, you know, some of the enteric bacteria, they grow at what? They divide every 30, 30 minutes. So why are we not inundated with bacteria? Why is it not planet bacteria? Something's got to kill them, isn't it? Oh, the viruses are killing the bacteria? Bacteriophage, yeah. Are you serious? So, of course. What do you say, of course, like everyone knows this? You know? yeah. So, it, so th there's a massive field developing in the 20s and 30s of phage therapy, but it was stopped when we had this magic bullet of antibiotics. You know, penicillin, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that, that we sort of serendipitously discovered. We developed all these antibiotics. And then before that, we were actually especially in, in Eastern Europe, and a lot of Russian scientists were developing bacteriophages to treat dysentery and, and, and human infections. But when we had antibiotics, we sort of took our eye off that ball. We went all in on antibiotics. And here we are 70, 18 years later with antimicrobial resistance. It's a big problem. So what are we doing now? Well, we're actually looking to phages. So one of my, my old students, uh, uh, Professor Ben Temperton, he's awesome. He's got a citizen phage uh, program running where they're isolating phages to treat human diseases. So that's the future. So the Do thing you want about to viruses, what a phage is before you a phage is a, a bacterial virus. It's just a so phage is, is from the, the word to eat. That's when they, they when they first discovered them, they thought they were eating the cells. But essentially, what they do is they get in, replicate, kill the cell, and move on. But um, bacteria, I should say, viruses are very, very specific for the target host. You know, like, um, you know, human viruses don't infect anything else. We, we, you know, we get scared when we see sort of uh, species jumps with the pox viruses, but they're very, very rare. So viruses can actually be used to target specific bacteria in, in infections in humans. So it's, it's a really cool, cool area of, of, of research. Do vi viruses obviously replicate quite, f or no, sorry, not replicate, but they um yeah, they, they mutate they quite, f they but they mutate quite fast as well, don't they? Yeah, and that's why they're so great. So, the so one virus when it infects a cell, you know, it, it depends on the, the virus and, and the host cell, but you know, it, you can make a hundred, a thousand different viruses, and then of course they'll go on and infect. So you get a very rapid evolution. So we call it, um, uh, it's called uh, Red Queen Host Dynamics. So in, you know, the Lewis Carroll books, the Red Queen says it takes all the running you can do in, to stay in the same place. And that's how you get um, populations interacting. So the host will increase in fitness relative to the virus, and then the virus will evolve, and you get a constant infection cycle where they're in, in synteny. So it's, it's very, very cool. And ultimately, they're still infecting the same thing, so they're staying in the same place. But the viruses are evolving incredibly rapidly. Uh, this is a, a legitimate question, trying to get into the, uh, the the granularity of it. But it's one I've never even thought about asking, even though I was told that I had chickenpox when I was, let's say, it was four or five. So I've known what a, I've known. There's these things called viruses. I know there's these things called bacteria. What it, what is a virus versus a bacteria? What are the dis, the differences? So, definition of a virus is it's an obligate intracellular parasite, right? So, it's not alive, technically. 
so you've got to consider a virus as a, a packet of genes, membrane bound that has no metabolism of its own. On its own, it's just completely inert. And then it bumps into a host, whether that's a bacteria, a human cell, uh, a plant cell, it gets inside and then it basically is a parasite inside the cell. So it lives within the cell, becomes active, replicates itself, bursts out, killing the cell and then infects the cells around it. That sounds so morbid. Um, I know you, <laughs> as well as obviously, it's yeah. all life depends upon it and, and the likes. But yeah. uh, the bit that is difficult for me to get my head around is that it's an inanimate object until it hits life. Yeah. So, but when it's replicated, it, it has metabolic rate. It has respiration, does it? It uses oxygen and energy and glucose. Well, so think about a cell, any cell. But when it comes to a viral infection, it's, it's a single cell that's being infected at any given point. And that virus is inside that cell. Effectively, that cell becomes a zombie. It's still alive, but it's doing the virus's bidding. It's, so quite often, a virus will get into a cell, and the first thing it'll do, it'll shut down normal host activity, and then it'll start expressing its own genes and turn the cell into what, what what's called as a, a viral factory. And that's what it is. It's just a hijacked cell turned into a factory to make more viruses, entirely selfish. And then those viruses will go off and infect other cells and make more factories and more viruses. It's just a massive production line. Brutal, utterly, totally brutal and lethal. I mean, it's... Most of the time. If it was in Some a Star so I should say, so that, that's called a lytic virus. Some viruses can go latent where they'll just think, oh, this cell is okay. I quite like it here. And then I'll just put my genome into the host genome and just wait until better circumstances. So I don't know if you've, you know, like I tell you what, when you've been ill before and you think, oh my God, I feel terrible. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, you look in the mirror and then you get a cold sore, yeah? And you're like, oh, that is sod's law, just what I need right now. Well, actually, that virus that caused the cold sore has been sat in your lip for donkey's years, probably. And it's getting the messages from the rest of your body saying, oh, he's terribly ill. He's going to die soon. And that virus is like, right, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> so then the cold sore comes through, which is so it can spread to other people. So viruses that, are, are cunning. That There's explains so many... that explains why I've had cold sores uh, uh, at times when I've run ultra marathons. Yeah, right. when you're stressed, when your yeah. body when your body's giving out signals of, I love the way you just slipped in when I've run ultra marathons. By the way, I didn't miss that. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm not proud of them to be honest. They were they were a period of utter stupidity. But you know, any time when I've taken my body to its absolute maximum, yeah, climbing big walls, when your body's at its limits, and yeah. and it's you know, it's given off signals that I am incredibly stressed. The virus will pick up on that and just think, right, this body is incredibly stressed. Maybe it's best if I pop out of here and go somewhere else. So, that, you know, that's, the, a, that's, that's a good signifier. I'm doing it right. Cause I haven't had one in years. So, but I've also exactly, got a bit fatter yeah. around the midline, you know, as well. So the, the virus <laughs> is enjoying it. Much better <laughs> living. I could talk about, I'm not just saying this. I could talk about viruses with you for hours. Cause I've got so many other questions to me. They seem like if they were in a, a Star Wars movie, there would be the ultimate expression of evil. 
you know they're going into the host and they're replicating and replicating to just destroy and destroy and destroy but there's this secondary benefit to them which is that they enable life there's almost this sort of poetic inverse I'd say beauty. Yeah, viruses I'd, I'd say they're not evil I think they are the force in Star Wars all <laughs> uh, oh, right okay so nice. you know and, and the true power is when they're in the in the middle really when you've got the good and the bad I mean the the, the fact is when they're infecting humans and then having a detrimental effect on our lives that is incredibly bad um but in terms of the overall viral activity without it with infecting the microbial world like biogeochemistry would break down on the planet so i guess there are always far more jedi than there are sith there are only ever two sith <laughs> they they could be the sort of when, when the viruses go bad in humans and and basically the rest of the time they're, they're they're on the light side with the jedi infecting everything else so uh i i think a star wars fan haven't i I find a star wars fan you have on, yeah on the, yeah 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 I, and we better not go down <laughs> that rabbit hole we'll have to save that one for another time um so so look nature this podcast is all about also looking at solutions and giving people some level of hope about the fact that it ain't all just a one-sided slide into catastrophe with environmental degradation and planetary heating and the likes you're you're in the game you're working you're looking at solutions where do you yep. see what are you most optimistic about right now um well Oh, don't say nothing. Not, don't say viruses. No, I'm, <laughs> no, no. Uh, I'm very, I personally am very optimistic because there are some awesome scientists out there who are putting their brains to the the problems that we've got at the moment. Um, climate change is the big one, and I don't. Th I think we're most of humanity is sleepwalking into this issue now. People are, you know. The, the COP meetings are great. The clue is in the name, though. We've just had COP26. I mean, how many more are we going to have before proper action is taken? Um, but at the same time, that there are some brilliant um, pieces of work being done to try and mitigate against that. And for me, as a, an algal scientist, um, full disclosure, I've recently set up a company to do this, which is set up um, it's called Seaweed Generation. We're going to do carbon dioxide removal using... Um, seaweed in the ocean so that's what i'm really positive about i think there's a lot of hope there we're we're um we're just getting started now we're on the start of our journey but i i am very very hopeful for it where over the last 20 years my group has always sort of taken the approach that um solutions unfortunately life is cheap it, human life in a lot of places in the world is deemed to be too cheap and um, especially in developing countries where you know environmental destruction is allowed and poor human health as a consequence is is acceptable big industry goes in makes loads of money and then it leaves and it leaves a catastrophe behind it you know you see that in mining sites with contaminated rivers and you know big industry putting out toxins into the rivers and things like that it, the industrial revolution has essentially done that on a global scale with carbon dioxide um it's a silent killer people are now waking up to it um and at the same time there are the, the, like i said the, the approach i was taking is that environmental remediation services unfortunately have to 
break even and pay for themselves these days. That's the capitalist society we, we live in, where we have if we want to save people's lives and improve their quality of living, we have to develop scientific processes that actually make it worthwhile to do that, which is really sad when you say it out loud like that. But if cleaning up a river or if doing some remediation process can make a profit, then people will do it. If it cause, causes the government extra money, quite often they won't. And that's, that's not something I agree with, but it's something I have to work with. It's a constraint I have to work with it. So we've always tried to develop solutions that actually help out as well as make a make make a profit so for the last seven or eight years I, I don't know if you know much about the sargassum blooms in that blight the caribbean every year so since about 2012 these massive algal blooms seaweed have come swept into the caribbean region they decimate the beaches you know tens of millions of tons wash it up totally prevents tourism happening it rots it stinks it gives off hydrogen sulfide turtles can't hatch from their eggs it smothers coral reefs it's, you know it's an absolute environmental catastrophe um and i've been trying to make fuels fertilizers plastics out of this material for the last six or seven years seven eight years eventually finally found the missing piece of my jigsaw with a, with my co-founder of the company which is carbon dioxide removal. So we're going to intercept the seaweed offshore, sink it to the deep ocean and remove this carbon from the carbon cycle permanently. So that's what I'm really excited about. It, it's a really cool, it's a really simple solution. And I think it's got great hope for, for sort of mitigating against some of this carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. So that's what I'm really positive about personally at the moment. And just briefly, why are you focusing on removing co2 from oceanic plants rather than land-based ones is there a difference in the quantity that you can uh, so if you that's that's a great question uh, if you remove it on land-based plants uh you know you've got a tree how long will the tree last 100 years or so and then we chop it down and burn it and the carbon goes straight back up into the atmosphere um by using seaweed in the ocean and sticking it to the deep ocean it goes down thousands of meters and it's essentially removed from the carbon cycle. It's on a much slower rate. It, that's why we have oil deposits in our oceans. That carbon gets locked away for millions of years and gets changed into oil. So ultimately, we want our seaweed to be turned into oil over millions of years. But 70% um, of the planet is covered in ocean. The, that's the only space for growth we've got. Um, terrestrial land is incredibly valuable for our food production. Um, uh, we, you know, you've seen how, you know, bioethanol, you know, the, I don't know if you saw the announcement where America's saying, well, we're, we're going to stop creating bioethanol now from corn and wheat because of the Ukraine crisis, food. you know, yeah. food. Um, how much land can we afford to put over to biofuel production in, in the future? It's, it's certainly not going to get any more, is it? Um, so it, there's always tensions on land for food and fuel things to, to, to basically for carbon dioxide removal, you need it locked in there. So that's not saying it's not part of the solution, but it's not scalable because there's just not enough land. And you have to remember the, the land is essentially a two dimensional environment. You know, we, we work in the soil. The ocean is three dimensions. It's up and yeah. down as well. One of the reasons we've gone after regenerative agriculture as a, 
core activity to our business is because of the fact that carbon sequestering is obviously a benefit of putting microbes back into the soil, putting in, always having cover crops, um, taking a completely organic approach so you're not causing the microbes to actually um, excrete CO2 in a stress response to pesticides and urea and the likes. And um, some of the numbers I've been looking at, you know, farming globally puts out about 30% of the world's CO2 across all of the different industries within farming, which is obviously if we could create a farming renaissance and there's plenty of case studies to show that when you actually even on a large scale monoculture when you take a more uh, a diverse approach to the soil microbes you get these huge transformations in both crop yields crop resilience health and co2 sequestration. i mean you know if you you look at modern farming practices it's it's terrible really for the environment you know like sort of sterile fields of monoculture that's not the way it should be you know we're, we're using massive amount of energy to fix nitrogen from the air using the harbor bosch process to create our fertilizers which are then running out into the ocean and causing these seaweed booms. that's why these seaweed booms occur is because we're adding excess mm-hmm. nutrients to the oceans everything's everything's out of sink at the moment and um yeah we need to bring that back into into normal cycling and I, you know, I think it is doable, but what we need to start doing is putting the environment first and not capital gains. Absolutely. You know, yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. Economies require a planet. The planet doesn't require economies. Yeah. You know, everyone seems to so obsessed with growth. Um, consolidation, I think, would be a lot healthier for the planet. Um, yeah. you, know, you know, everything can't keep on growing unless you get viral infections. You know, mm. population breeds disease. You know, the, the, the reason why, you know, COVID went global was because we live in a global society. Everyone's connected and everyone's living so close together. You know, that's why we're getting, you know, all these viruses spreading around the world now. Um, we, it's different now. We're not isolated communities. We're all together and we're all growing. And, you know, that's why, you know, we talked about sanitation earlier. You, you didn't need intensive sanitation systems until we started living in cities. So, you know, what we've got is a is a very strange world. I mean, it's a brilliant world we live in, but we, you know, we need some technologies to actually uh, catch up with the lifestyle that we've created for ourselves. I was going to end on seaweeds, but you opened a, one last door there because I know I'm <laughs> eating into your time and, uh, and I had an alert saying that uh, our, our meeting, our uh, podcast time was over. But just one final one is that yeah, as a scientist, as somebody who obviously knows a ton about viruses and the likes do you see more pandemics on the horizon do you see that unless we restore i mean there's obviously a link between environment healthy environment and the ability of humans to resist viruses as well where do you see the future is there another covid i think that's that's a great question which i could probably talk about for an hour I think society at the moment is really, really interesting. I think we've all learned an awful lot from COVID. Um, and I, you know, I think if there was a new pandemic that hit, and there will be more pan- viral pandemics, I can assure you of that. Um, virologists have been warning about this for donkey's years. It wasn't a surprise to any scientist that, you know, COVID, is the, the name was a surprise, but, you know, that's because it was... 
it was just, it could have been any virus i suppose what's interesting is human society is we are i i see this in communities is, is we're disconnecting with each other you know we're all online these days we live in this online world if you take that you know you see what's coming next with the metaverse and things like that people are probably going to plug in more than ever you know you know if you see um wally you know where those people are on the sort of space cruise ship and you know they're just looking at their screens from a viral perspective that's the last thing viruses want because people aren't having the contact people are losing the ability to to interact with each other as human beings so that will counter the spread of any viruses that's really sad um <laughs> so covid has triggered a behavioral change that will ultimately no i i think society was moving that way anyway mm -hmm. i think covid highlighted it so a lot of people thrived during covid being in isolation mm -hmm. a lot of people yep. hated it yeah um but people got used to it so i think people are you know regardless of covid taking that out of it people are becoming more isolated now we are seeing less and less of people i mean in the uk most people don't talk to their neighbors anymore mm. you know if, you know if we say all right we're, we're going to start working from home more we're having less interaction with real humans you know everyone's pixelated you know I, I met someone last week who i've been working with for 18 months for the first time in the flesh you know that we are changing how we interact with each other um from a viral perspective that's better in terms of pandemic management i don't think it's great for human society but it's an interesting side of that so. i've i've had in the last couple of months three people after i've shake i've they've reached out to fist bump me and i've shaken their hands and they've either uh, and this happened last week in the philippines one person who shook my hands begrudging and then turned straight around and used a hand sanitizer yeah. in front of me straight away. Yeah. <laughs> and I've had two other people recoil in horror at the fact that I'm now shaking a hand. And a couple of years yeah. ago, that would have been, it would have been rude not to, right? It's all now fist bumps or bowing yeah. at each other. Um, well, we've never met, but I feel like uh, we've just been down the pub and had a good old yarn. And, <laughs> and, and in all honesty, that this conversation has, has gone into completely different uh, areas than I expected it to and it's been incredible <laughs> <Me too. laughs> I I would I would love I mean it's Friday here it's 20 to 6 and I've got um, my sound recorder so my hands falling asleep over there in the corner she's nodding off um, and I've got kids waiting for daddy for dinner um, I'd love to get you back on though because I haven't even started with my questions I mean I got these I got all this this happens every time by the way I got all these questions and I never ask any of them because we get go down these amazing interesting fascinating sidelines so um Thank you so much for being on. Where can people find you if they want to know more about uh, your work? My website's uh, just been built at the moment. I've had to take it down to change some stuff on it. But um, in a couple of months, it'll be back up and running, which is bluemicro.co.uk. Okay. Um, otherwise, just Google stalk me and they can find my work. If they put Mike Allen extra into Google, they'll be able to find me. Okay. Are you on Instagram or TikTok doing dances? Oh, I'm on uh, Twitter as well at mike underscore j underscore alan which That's is right. where is that because i was and, um, told on twitter that you take no prisoners i, I, I don't i think I'm quite <laughs> that's what i was told uh, uh grace who's our comms director said yeah he's he's hilarious on twitter he just calls out all these different people and he's just 
takes no prisoners on it. So I haven't I, actually I, stalked you on Twitter yet, so I, I don't know what. No, I, I don't think I'm that bad. There's huh? some brilliant Star Wars related microalgal <laughs> art there that I Maybe constantly it. put out. Uh, I'm, the irony is I'm waiting to go viral on Twitter. Hey. Um, all, all, my, all my virus tweets go nowhere. So no, all right. Like well, you're definitely going to go viral after this podcast, especially when we put loads of advertising budget behind it. We'll push it out there. Um, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know we've got loads more to talk about. Um, I'll uh, I'll uh, put all the show, your email in the show notes, uh, not your email, your website and everything else. Um, and I'd love to get you back on to continue the discussion. Yeah, invite me back on whenever you like. Right, but we'll different shirts next time. We have to keep changing the shirts. Yeah, up, sure. Yeah. I get um, a new one. I won't look like a prisoner next time. I'll send you one. I'll send you one from from here. <laughs> send me your size, and I'll send you a, a barley made uh, shirt. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. Thank Take you. Care. Great meeting. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Bye. 